Well, good morning. If you do have a, um, a Bible with you this morning, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians, chapter 6. We'll start reading in just a minute here in uh, verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, Time out. Let's stand while we pray. You've been sitting a long time. How about I give you a rest and let you, let you stand? And now we'll pray. Well, Father, we, uh, uh, it's just a blessing to, to be here this morning, to be together. Uh, really is a joy to celebrate these baptisms and just to remember again, uh, Lord God, what you have done for us through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the person and work of Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ, we have been uh, crucified, our old man crucified, our old self, sinful self crucified, we've been buried, we've been raised again to newness of life, even now, and as we stand here before you, uh, Father, still fighting against sin in this world, Lord, we stand before you in newness of life, your spirit within us, Lord God, and um, and, and your word says, now behold what manner of love the Father should bestow upon us that we should be called children of God. And children of God we are. And uh, Lord, what, a, what, a, what an amazing privilege, blessing that is to be able to call the God of this universe our Father. And to know that you love us, you love us like a father loves his children just infinitely better than we would ever love our children. And Father, you do everything necessary to sustain your children, preserve your children, and, and help your children. You're so good to us, Lord God. You're so good to us in and through Jesus Christ. We just, we just thank you for it. We thank you for it this morning. And Father, we know one of the ways that you bless us and help us as your children is through your word. We just open it up, Lord God, and this book is not like other books. It's not just black words on a white page, but Jesus, you said my words are spirit, and they are life. And, and Father, we believe that, that this book here is food for our souls in Christ Jesus. And so we just look to you now, Father, and ask you, will you please bless us through your word? Will you please open up the, the eyes of our hearts and illumine our hearts, enlighten our hearts, and enable us to see things in your word and help us to believe them, help us to, to obey them, we pray, Father. And uh, we, we believe you'll do this, Lord God, you're good. And uh, so we just look to you and ask, will you bless us now? Through your word we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we, started, um, we started a sermon series just a few weeks back on the subject of, of prayer. Prayer is, is, is simply one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. Prayer is just vitally important for believers who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Your health as a Christian, if you are a Christian, your, your health as a Christian, our health as a local church of Christians, our health will depend largely on our prayer life. 
Dick Eastman, in his book, The Hour That Changes the World, a great book, Dick Eastman says, where there is an absence of prayer, there will be an absence of power. But where there is a frequency of prayer, there will be a continuing display of God's power. You know, you, know, you think about prayer. prayer. Prayer is just this incredible gift that God gives to his children. When, when Jesus first forgives you of your sin, when, when, when you first repent or turn away from your sin, and you cling to Christ Jesus in faith, and Jesus then forgives you of your sin, at that moment God gives you this incredible gift called prayer. Ole Halsby, in his book called Prayer, He says it like this. He says, quote, Jesus comes to sinners and awakens them from their sleep in sin. He converts them. He forgives them of their sins and makes them his children. And then he takes the weak hand of the sinner and he places it in his own strong nail-pierced hand. And he says to you, come now. I'm going with you all the way, and I will bring you safe home to heaven. And if you ever get into trouble or difficulty along the way, just tell me about it in prayer. And I will give you, without reproach, everything you need, and more besides, day by day, as long as you live, end quote. Now prayer is just this amazing gift that he gives, that God the Father gives to his children who trust in him. And the neglect of prayer will always make you very weak as a Christian. Old Halsby goes on to say, the children of God, they can grieve Jesus in no worse way than to neglect prayer. For by neglecting prayer, they sever to some degree the connection that exists between themselves and the Savior, and their inner life is then doomed to be withered and crippled. And the truth is that so many Christians who profess to believe in Jesus, they do neglect prayer, hardly pray at all. That was my story for a long time in my Christian life, and a professing Christian who neglects prayer will be a weak Christian. So we've been having this little prayer series here on prayer, and today we're going to be thinking here for just a few minutes about some hindrances to prayer. Just just looking here this morning at at just a couple of things that can hinder your prayer as a believer, things that can obstruct or hamper your prayer as a believer. There's an old hymn by William Cowper written back in 1779. It says, What various hindrances we meet when coming to the mercy seat. And what William Cowper was saying there was, What various hindrances we meet 
when we approach God in prayer. You will face hindrances when you decide to start praying as a Christian. And we're going to look this morning at three different hindrances, three major things that can hinder or hamper your prayer life as a believer. We may not get through all three of these. We'll see how it goes here. They all start with the letter S for your convenience. Uh, And the first major hindrance to prayer that we'll think about here this morning is Satan, the devil. And you may not realize this, but as a believer, if you do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, Satan does not want you to pray. Satan hates when believers pray. And Satan, the devil, the powers of darkness, they will do anything and everything to keep you from prayer. The powers of darkness would prefer that you would do just about anything else in the entire world than pray. Satan does not want you to pray. Satan has probably been trying to distract many of you during this prayer series. Satan does not want you to hear what the Bible says about prayer. But if Satan can't distract you from hearing what the Bible says about prayer, well, he's still okay with that as long as you don't actually pray. Satan is not concerned that you are a hearer only of God's word. He does not want you to be a hearer and a doer of God's word. He doesn't care if you sit and listen to sermons about prayer. He just does not want you to pray. And he will do anything and everything to keep you from it. That hymn by William Cowper, it goes on to say, Satan trembles when he sees even the weakest saint upon his knees. Satan hates prayer. And why does Satan hate prayer? prayer so much? Well, I think it's probably simply that Satan understands how powerful and how valuable prayer is in the Christian life. Satan, he knows that believers, through prayer, they connect in a deep way with the all-powerful God of the universe. Satan knows that believers are strengthened through prayer. They, they are filled and, and empowered more and more with the Holy Spirit through prayer. They are guided through prayer. They are emboldened through prayer. Satan knows that prayer is our very lifeline as believers. It is our life's source. It is the way you will receive more and more grace and power from the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. Satan understands the power and value of prayer, I think, much better than most Christians do. I think we have a tendency to to really seriously undervalue the importance and the power of prayer. Satan does it. He knows how powerful prayer is. So Satan attacks our prayer life. Very subtly tries to lead you away from this vitally important aspect in the Christian life. If you just look at Ephesians 6 here, there's lots of verses we could probably look at that would show us maybe how Satan might hate 
prayer. I think Ephesians 6 is a good one, starting in verse 10. Paul was writing to a group of believers here. He's coming to the end of his letter, and Paul starts talking here about this spiritual war that we are facing as believers. Paul says this, verse 10, Finally, believers, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, then you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Pause there for one second. Our ultimate battle as believers, our ultimate battle is not a battle against flesh and blood. It's not a battle against the people who think differently than you do when it comes to politics. Our battle, our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. No, our ultimate battle, the Bible says, is against spiritual beings, spiritual rulers, spiritual authorities, cosmic powers right now over this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, all these spiritual enemies in this world right now fighting against the people of God, scheming against the people of God, schemes against us right now as a small part of the people of God. As believers, we are right now in the very middle of, of, of an absolutely raging spiritual war that's going on all around the world. And I think a lot of Christians in America right now don't really believe that. Don't believe it. Now, I'm not saying that we don't talk about it from time to time. Oh, we do. We'll quote those verses there. Hey, man, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces, man, here. And then we go out and live our daily lives, day in, day out, and hardly, if ever, even think about spiritual enemies. And just because you say it doesn't mean you actually believe it. If you believe it, you'll live your life differently. You'll actually think about it from time to time during your day, these spiritual enemies. You know, all a lot of Christians think about for the most part is flesh and blood. My spouse, my kids, my coworkers, my neighbors, my boss, flesh and blood. And, and the only wrestling in the lives of many believers in America, it's a wrestling against flesh and blood. That's all it is. That's all it is. You, you argue and fight on Facebook with the people you don't agree with politically. You have a conflict at work and there's that flesh and blood wrestling. You have an argument in your family. You don't agree with maybe something a family member believes. And there's this wrestling with flesh and blood in your, your, your family. And that, that, honestly, let's just call it what it is. That, that, that's really the only wrestling that a lot of believers in America ever do. So wrestling against flesh and blood... 
You know, we can quote those verses from Paul there. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual enemies. But what we really should say is we just don't wrestle at all against spiritual enemies. We wrestle against flesh and blood. And you know, really, if you think about it, I I think believers in, in, in America, a lot of believers, we really do kind of have this peacetime mentality. You know, we look around us on, on a daily basis here, here, here in America, and we don't see in, any war. And because we don't see any war, well, then we just deep down in our hearts don't really think there is any type of war other than maybe a flesh and blood war with the people around me. And, and we, we begin to live like we're in peacetime. We're not at war. We're, 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 we're not soldiers at war. We're... We're, we're civilians in a time of peace. And, and when that peacetime mentality sets into your heart and you don't realize you're in a raging spiritual war, a raging spiritual war for your soul, for your children's souls, for the souls of your neighbor, when that peacetime mentality sets deep down in your heart, you know what you start to do? You start to live like a civilian in peacetime. And you start to do what Paul warns us not to do in 2 Timothy 2. You start to entangle yourself with civilian pursuits. You're just buying more and more stuff. You're just filling your life with more and more fun. More and more entertainment. You're just filling your life with more and more kids' activities. And there's nothing wrong with, with buying, there's nothing wrong with kids' activities. There's nothing wrong with having fun if you recognize that you're a soldier at war. And life as a Christian is not meant to be a life where you fill your life with civilian pursuits. That actually hampers you in your war. And that's what happens. I think we have this peacetime mentality. We fill our lives with civilian pursuits. And all the while, the war goes on around us. And listen, I believe with all my heart that one of, big, one of Satan's biggest schemes, that one of Satan's biggest schemes against us in the American church is to allow us to continue to think that there is no war. Have you ever heard the phrase, you don't wake a sleeping dog? Well, the American church to a large degree is a sleeping dog. We don't believe there's really a war. We fill our lives with civilian pursuits and Satan says, I'll let that happen. Why would I attack that and poke a sleeping dog? He won't do it. That is a scheme of the devil against us. Paul says that we are not ignorant of the schemes of the devil, and yet we are, I think, on many occasions. That's the scheme of the devil. Keep us from thinking there's no war, but there is a war, and it is time for us as believers to wake up to that truth and to begin to fight. That's, That's why God saved us. He didn't save us to be sleepers. He saved us to be soldiers. And God, man, he has given us some spiritual armor to help us in our fight. Listen, if all you're going to do is sleep your way through the Christian life, you don't need the armor. You don't need it. So you just take the verse off of your wall. (laughs) If your mindset is to sleep your way into heaven, you don't need the armor. Because Satan's probably not going to attack you. 
But, but if we wake up to the fact that we're actually truly at war and we think we're going to start fighting in this war, well, you need some spiritual armor. And God has given us some spiritual armor. And here's the thing. One of the primary spiritual weapons that God has given you is prayer. It's prayer. It's prayer. We look at verse 13 again. Paul goes on here. Therefore, Paul says, because we have these spiritual enemies that he just talked about, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. I want you to notice all the active verbs here. These are things that you are supposed to do as a Christian. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, God, man, praise God, we're in a war. He's given us some spiritual armor to help us um, if and when we actively engage in this war. And all these things, these things are, are things you must actively take up in your life on a daily basis. You fasten on the belt of truth. And let me tell you, you don't just fasten on the belt of truth by saying it in the morning. I'm fastening on the belt of truth right now. Okay. It's fine to say that. appreciate that you would say that in the morning. That's not how you fasten on the belt of truth. You know how you do it? You live in the truth. You live in the truth. Your mind is being washed in the truth. And as your mind is being washed in the truth, you are fastening on a belt of truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You don't just put that on by saying it. I put on the breastplate of righteousness. No, you put on the breastplate of righteousness by trusting firmly in Christ who is your righteousness and by walking in righteousness in your life. And if there are areas in your life where you are not pursuing righteousness and you are happy to be sinning, there is a chink in your breastplate of righteousness. The armor is stuff you actively put on as a believer by the grace of God. And man, you'll notice as you work through those different pieces of armor there, you will notice that the vast majority of that armor is defensive or protective armor. It protects you against Satan's attacks. But God gives us there in that passage two and only two offensive weapons. Weapons that you can use as a believer to go on the offensive and attack and and wound and defeat the powers of darkness. Our two weapons that God gives us here, they're in verse 17. Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If, you, if you're not living in the Word of God, you have not taken up the sword of the Spirit. You can say it in the morning, I'm taking up the sword of the Spirit. But if you don't have this in your heart, you don't have the sword of the Spirit in your hand. 
That's the first weapon. You take up the sword of the Spirit, Paul says. And then the second weapon, verse 18, praying. Praying. Paul says, at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Those, man, those are your two primary offensive weapons, the, the, the Word of God and, and, and prayer. This, this weapon that Paul calls there in verse 18, he calls it all prayer. And you, you just look, you, you look carefully at that. Look at, all, look at the all words that, that Paul just heaps up there in verse 18. Praying, he says, at all times. In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, or with all different kinds of prayer, I think he's saying, to that end, keep alert. To what end? In prayer. In prayer, to to that end, making all prayer, keep alert with what? With all perseverance. Persevere in your prayers, Paul's saying, making supplication in prayer for whom? For all the saints. And also for me, Paul says, all, 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 this, this, this gift, this weapon that Paul would call all prayer. It's one of our primary weapons as believers. Just pause for a second. Picture yourself on the front line of, of a war right now. Somewhere around the world, there you are, man. You're, you're in the front lines. This raging war around you. There, there, there's casualties on every side. You have your battle armor on. You've got your helmet, your flak jacket. You've got your boots. And in your hands, you have two things. In one hand, you have a sword. <laughs> or modern terminology, maybe you have a gun in this hand. Something over here. Uh, so you can reach a little further than just the sword. There you go. You got that in hand. And in your other hand, what do you have? I, I, I think it's probably something like a walkie-talkie. And in your hand, that walkie-talkie doesn't look very like, like it's very powerful at all, but it is actually incredibly powerful because with that walkie-talkie there, you can call for help. You, you, you can call for anything you might need in the heat of battle. You can call for supplies or call for reinforcements. You can call for air support, this massive, this massive firepower that is there for you, for the asking. This is walkie-talkie in your hand. That's really what prayer is. John Piper says that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It was given to us by God to be used in spiritual warfare when you're wrestling against spiritual enemies, fighting hard for God's name and God's kingdom in this world. Prayer is the way you call for whatever you might need in that battle, in the heat of battle, uh, when you're seeking to advance God's fame in this world. Give us our daily bread, God. Give us our daily bread, not just so we can eat great food, but give us our daily bread so, so we can have strength to fight hard to advance your kingdom in in this world. Give us healthy bodies, Lord, not just so we look good when we pose in the mirror, not just so we'll live to be uh, uh, 250, uh, but Lord, give us healthy bodies so we can go proclaim your, your, your fame around this world. Keep us from temptation, oh Lord God, so we won't be weakened in this battle. 
Prayer, prayer is this amazing wartime walkie-talkie, an incredibly powerful instrument that God has given to you. John Piper says the problem is many Christians in America, because they don't believe there's actually a war, they've turned the wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Where you're just going to use it to call up to the divine butler to give you more comforts in this life. It goes from being a wartime walkie-talkie to a domestic intercom. Man, prayer, though, when you're at war, man, prayer is infinitely powerful when you think about it. And, and why? Well, because prayer connects you with the one who is infinitely powerful. There's a man, Albert Richardson, I've told you about his, pray, uh, his book, The Kneeling Christian. Albert Richardson says that prayer, in some sense, is omnipotent. It's all-powerful. Because it connects you with the one who is omnipotent. Charles Spurgeon, he said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Amen. You know what Satan wants to do to you, believer? Well, first... He wants to try to convince you that there is no war so that you'll just use prayer as a domestic intercom. Continue to contangle yourself with more and more civilian pursuits. But Satan also really wants to very subtly remove the walkie-talkie from your hand. He wants you to stop praying. Because if Satan can keep you from praying, if he can take that walkie-talkie away from you, he just cut you off from your power supply. Now you're alone in a battle, all by yourself, anxious toil, trying to win the battle by yourself. Satan just severed. If he gets that prayer away from you and Christians stop praying, he just severed in a major way, the connection that exists between you and the omnipotent God of the universe. Satan knows that a Christian soldier who has no walkie-talkie is not praying, that Christian soldier will be weak as water and will do very, very little damage at all to his spiritual kingdom on this earth. Satan and his demons, they understand very well the value and the power of prayer. And they will therefore do just about anything and everything they can to keep you from prayer. Listen, the powers of darkness, they will try to distract you from prayer. They, they, they will try to get you frustrated with prayer. They'll, they'll try to, to tempt you to believe that prayer doesn't really work. They'll, they'll try to tempt you to get angry at God so you won't pray. You ever wondered why, just before you ever start to pray, have, have you ever wondered why you instantly then think of a thousand other things you should probably do right there, rather than pray? You're getting ready to pray, and all of a sudden, oh man, ah, i got to get a couple things done for work. Ah. Oh. Man, surely it would be better right now for me to be with my kids at breakfast than to stay here and pray. Oh, man, I forgot to mow the lawn. i got people coming over tonight. i got to go mow, go mow the lawn. Maybe I can pray while I mow. 
well, man, I just desperately need to rearrange my sock drawer right now. <laughs> the colors, the whites, got to do it, and it has to happen now. <laughs> I wonder why that happens to our minds. Have you ever wondered, whenever you're actually in prayer, why your mind just seems so distracted at times? All these wandering thoughts. All of a sudden, you're just thinking about the yard, <laughs> the Vikings. Oh man, look at the fly on the wall. Wow, there's a fly in my room. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why when, when you pray, <laughs> your kids just suddenly feel like they need to interrupt with some urgent question? <laughs> Daddy, are you stronger than a hippo? Because <laughs> I just got to know and I got to know right now. I mean, a hippo's pretty fast, so maybe fat, so maybe you could take the thing. I don't know. Can you do that? Can we talk about that for like 30 minutes? And you love your kids, right? So you have the hippo conversation for 30 minutes. Do you not think that Satan at times could stir up really good people to keep you from doing things? Absolutely. 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 And they don't necessarily know it. What, 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 what about, you're, you're, just sitting down to, 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 you're just sitting down to pray, and all of a sudden somebody, now oh, I just got to call him. I got to text him, man. This was funny. Bing! And you are ruled by your phone, right? That's what we got to be in this day and age. So you got to answer it, and it's a 30-minute text now, now that you're, you're doing it. And it's, Satan very easily can stir people up to, to do things. We don't know all the ways he works like that. The scriptures do talk about taking thoughts captive. I think the bottom line, wherever those things are coming from, just know, Satan does not want you to pray. And he will do anything and everything to keep you from it. He would prefer you did anything else in the entire world than pray. He wants the wartime walkie-talkie out of your hand. One of the primary hindrances to prayer is Satan. Let me give you just a couple quick quotes here. Dick Eastman, in the hour that changes the world, he says this, the moment we determine to pray daily, Satan fills our path with distracting hindrances. The children demand more time all of a sudden. It seems we're more weary than usual. You're too busy. Your mind is too preoccupied. Your heart is not inclined toward prayer right now. Later on, you'll have more time, you think. Your mind will be more calm and collected later. You'll be able to pray in a more devotional frame of mind. And before you know it, the entire day is gone, and you've not had a single quiet, quiet hour alone with Christ. Ole Halsby, he says, If prayer... If prayer is, as we have seen, the central function of the new life of faith, the very heartbeat of our life in God, it is obvious that our prayer life must become the target against which Satan directs his best and most numerous darts. Satan understands, Halsby said, Satan understands better than we do what prayer means to ourselves and to others. That is why his chief attack is directed against our Prayer, if he can in one way or another weaken our prayer, his prospects of stealing our life in God are good. Albert Richardson, he says, Do we realize that there is nothing the devil dreads 
so much as prayer. His great concern is to keep us from praying. He loves to see us up to our eyes in work, provided we do not pray. He does not fear that we are eager and earnest Bible students. I'll say that again. Satan does not fear that we are earnest and eager Bible students provided we are little in prayer. He knows we can accomplish more through our prayers than through our work. He would rather us have us do anything else than pray. If there were no devil, Richardson said, there would be no difficulty in prayer. But it is the evil one's chief aim to make prayer impossible. And Samuel Chadwick, in his book, The Path of Prayer, he says, the one concern of the devil, of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. Satan fears nothing from our studies. He fears nothing from our work. He fears nothing from our Christian activities. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. You know, some of us have probably said for years, I just struggle in prayer, man. I, I just, it's just hard for me to pray, and I get that. I've said that before in my life. We, we get it. Prayer is difficult at times, but you ever stop to realize that that right there might be one of the reasons there is a spiritual enemy who hates you and doesn't want you to pray. It's one major hindrance to prayer, Satan. A second major hindrance to prayer is sin. Second major hindrance to prayer is sin. If you choose as a believer to live with unconfessed, unrepentant sin, that sin in your life will without a doubt hinder your prayers. Listen, when the Holy Spirit has identified in your life a certain sin in your relationship with your spouse or your kids or with your boss, Holy Spirit has kind of put his finger on a certain sin in your life. You, you, you can feel it. And the Holy Spirit's giving you no rest in your life because of that sin. And the Holy Spirit is prompting you to confess that sin to God and to other people. The Holy Spirit's pulling you to repent of that sin. And you refuse to do it. Dig your heels in the ground, won't confess, won't repent. You've chosen to live in willful defiance in that area of your life. That unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life will definitely hinder your prayers. God at some point will stop answering your prayers. Let me say that again. God at some point will stop answering your prayers. He'll stop doing it. 
Thankfully, God doesn't do that for every sin that we commit as believers because we are all still sinners. We are all still committing sin every single day. But if you are in Christ Jesus, then your sins are forgiven and God no longer treats you as your sins deserve. You think about every sin we commit, we deserve to be cut off from God. The second we commit the sin, no prayer gets through to God. But God loves his children when they are in Christ Jesus. He knows we are weak. He knows we are frail. He knows we're sinning every day. And, and because of Christ, every sin does not cut us off from the presence of God. Prayer still gets through to God. Praise God for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is compassionate with his children, even in their sin. And, and even though we sin, our Father continues to listen to our prayers, especially when our hearts are humble before him and ready to confess when he shows us sin. But listen, when as his children, we begin to rebel against our Father in some way, Committing certain sins and we're no longer soft and humble before him. <laughs> no longer responding to his conviction. We just sort of dig our heels in the ground and refuse to confess to him and to other believers. We just won't walk in the light with that sin that's in our life. God shows it to us. We won't turn. We begin to harbor this unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our hearts. Our Father will discipline us. God's a good father, and good fathers discipline their, their children. And our father will discipline us because he loves us. And one of the ways the father disciplines his kids is by refusing to answer their prayers when they are walking in willful defiance of him. And you can just think of a father and a child. You know, if my children in my home, if they're, if they're relatively humble, and, 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 and if when Molly and I might show them some sort of sin in their life, if, if, if they're relatively willing to confess and, and to turn from that, shoot, man, all's good. <laughs> all's good. We love our kids. We're thankful for that, and we'll continue to listen to their requests. Daddy, can we have dessert after dinner? Sure, let's go get ice cream. But listen, and you parents, you know how this is. If my child begins to rebel in some way, begin, begins to sin in my home, and even though I talk with him about it on multiple occasions, he, he just sort of digs his heels in and he, he rolls his eyes at me and he, he keeps doing it, choosing to live in, in, in willful defiance in my home, and that child then comes and asks for dessert or comes and asks for the car tonight. <laughs> Not over my dead body. Because I love my kids. And I don't want them to turn out to be train wrecks. At some point as a father, you stop responding to those requests when your child is living in willful defiance of you. And it's really no different with God the Father. He does the same type of thing. If you're not listening when God is convicting you of sin, refusing to confess and turn away from sin, I'll just stop there. I think some of you probably never ever confess sin to another human being. Now that's a dangerous place to be as a believer. If you live there, God's, God's, He's prompting you to confess and turn away from sin. You won't do it. 
Your father will discipline you. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. One of the ways the father disciplines his children is by not answering their prayers. And man, there are so many scriptures in the Bible that we could look at that would show how sin clearly hinders prayer. Let me just give you a couple here. We're going to hit these quickly, so we'll throw them on the screen here. Just a, a couple of verses here that show that sin hinders prayer. Prayer. Let me set the first one up for you before we put it up there. The people of Israel at this time in history, it's out of the book of Isaiah, people of Israel at this time were sinning badly against God, sinning badly, and God had sent prophets to tell them about it. They were refusing to change, and yet they were, they were continuing to pray to God, and they were wondering why God was not listening to their prayers. And Isaiah said this, Isaiah 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. sin had created this barrier between them and God. Now if they were truly his, if they were truly people of faith, it wasn't the ultimate type of barrier where they're cut off for good or they're disowned as his kids. No, but their sin had created some sort of barrier between them and God and God was no longer hearing their prayers. Or here's Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. It's the same thought there. You can see the link between sin and and unanswered prayer. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had harbored sin in my heart, not confessing, not repenting of that sin, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. But the psalmist says uh, that God has listened. And why? The implication is there. There is because I have not cherished iniquity in my heart. Or how about John 9, 31? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. If you're a worshiper of God and a worshiper of God who is doing God's will, you're actively seeking to obey His commands in the Scripture, humble and repentant when God shows you disobedience in your life, God listens to your prayers. But if you're not doing God's will, you're, you're hardened against Him, you're not willing to confess, not willing to repent, God doesn't listen. Or Here's, here's 1 Peter 3.1. Peter is talking to husbands and wives here, Christian husband and wives. He addresses wives first and how they relate to their husbands. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct and so on. And then in verse 7, Peter then addresses husbands and he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, there's the big purpose statement, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You catch the train of thought there. 
Wives, this is how God wants you to relate to your husbands. Be subject to them in just a godly, biblical way. Husbands, this is how God wants you to relate to your wives. Live with them in an understanding way, showing honor to them as a weaker vessel. And why should husbands and wives relate to one another as God commands there? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter could be saying a couple different things there. He could be saying that if you let that discord, that disobedience to God's commands, if you leave that in your marriage relationship, you're not going to want to pray together. You don't want to pray with somebody you're fighting with. But I also think Peter could be saying there that when you leave that sin in in your marriage, you're disobeying God's commands in the way you're supposed to relate to your spouse, God won't hear your prayer. Pause right there for a second. Did you ever stop to think that the way you treat your spouse could impact your prayer? And if you choose to live in willful disobedience to the Lord God in your relationship with your spouse, at some point, God will stop answering your prayer. And you've gone through your life and you've gotten so mad that God won't answer your prayers and the fault lies with you. Not with God. Not with prayer. It's with you. Sin hinders prayer. And listen, if sin in my relationship with my wife can hinder our prayers, can hinder my prayers, then surely sin in my relationship with other people could also hinder my prayers. I believe with all my heart, if you right now, you are harboring bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart towards another human being, God is prompting you to forgive. He's asking you to give that bitterness up. He's telling you, you can take it to the cross. I will help you to let the bitterness go, but you just will not do it. That sin will hinder your prayer. And I think if you harbor other sin in your life, if you're right now harboring sexual immorality, You are in an adulterous relationship outside of your covenantal marriage. Or if you are living in drunkenness or or, or complete greed, whatever it might be, and the Holy Spirit has highlighted that in your life, and you will not turn, that will hinder your prayers. Look at this, 1 John 3, 21. Same type of thing, just, man, just follow this through. Think of what John's saying here. Beloved, believers... If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Whatever we ask in prayer, John says, we receive from God because we keep His commandments and do what pleases him. And clear implication there is if you do not keep God's commands, you, you, you do not do what pleases your heavenly father, you will not receive whatever you ask from God. Man, if as a child of God right now, you, you, you are disobeying your father, you, you're, you're, you're not keeping his commands, you're not doing what pleases him, you're not willing to turn and confess there with those sins, John says your heart will condemn you. I believe he's simply saying your your conscience will bother you there. And John says you'll have no confidence before God. Sin in your life, when you don't deal with it, it rocks your assurance of faith. 
Now, you, know, you, you may still be a believer, a genuine believer, but if you are allowing that sin to remain in your life, old theologians forever have said that will rock your assurance. You will lose confidence that God really loves you. And, John says, whatever you ask, of the flip side of that, whatever you ask, you don't receive because you're not obeying his commandments. John Stott, talking about those verses right there, John Stott says, Obedience is the indispensable condition of answered prayer. Say that again. Did you ever think there was a condition to having your prayers answered? (laughs) Yep. One, you got to be in Christ, praying in the name of Christ, praying through faith in Christ. There is another condition for answered prayer. John Stott says, obedience is the indispensable condition of answered prayer. Charles Spurgeon once said this, he said, quote, Just as you do with your children, you have a discipline over them. (laughs) You don't disown them, he says, because they do wrong. Do you have ways of disciplining the rebellious and rewarding the obedient? You are in no hurry to grant the requests of your complaining, disgruntled boy. In fact, you deny him his request, but that other dear, gentle, loving child has only to ask and have. This is correct discipline, Spurgeon says, and such as God exercises among us. He, he does not cast off his children for their sin and utterly disown his children, but he does chasten them in his love, and one of his chastisements lies in shutting out their prayers. I think that right there is why most people would recommend that if you're going to go into a time of prayer, you would spend a little time confessing sin there. And I just think that's wise. And we'll talk about the different elements of prayer later, but if you have an hour and you're going to spend it to prayer, spend a little time in confession. Just get down on your knees. Okay, Father, search my heart over the last 24, 48 hours. For some of you, it might be over the last 20 years. <laughs> I haven't confessed, so will you please quickly search my heart because i got to do some confession here. Search my heart and just ask him simply to do it. Holy Spirit, show me the sins I've committed. And, and when he does show you those sins, confess them. And man, just quickly take them to the cross. Be reminded that your sins are forgiven receive a cleansing there for your sins and leave your sins there. Don't sit there and dwell over it. Christ is enough. He was crucified so that you would not bear the guilt of those sins. So go acknowledge it before God. Yes, Father, I see it. Yes, forgive me, Father, for those sins. I think it's good to say them out loud when you're praying. Man, I'm telling you, if you, if you whatever the sin you committed and you say it out loud, it just kind of <laughs> jolts you. Like, well, Father, I was angry with that guy at work, and your word says anger is murder. Please forgive me in my heart murdering that person at work. And leave it there at the cross. Receive the forgiveness and walk away and leave it. Man, I sat down to pray uh, earlier this week, and, and uh, I, I got there to pray, and instantly <laughs> I thought of a couple of things I had done the previous couple days in our little two-day vacation at the North Shore. There were a couple of instances where I was um, just flat-out angry with my children, and I didn't take that anger to the Lord. Um, uh, I expressed
express the anger. And my pride wants to tell you that uh, I just raise my voice a little bit with my children. Uh, you know, like any firm parent would do, but that's not a humble confession. A humble confession would be, I yelled at my kids a couple of times. And the sin there was selfishness, it was impatience, it was anger. And as I knelt to pray, God convicted me, asked him to forgive me, took it to the cross, left it there. I then went later and asked my kids to forgive me because I didn't just sin against the Father, I sinned against them. You forgive me for yelling at me. Kids are so gracious, they will forgive. Uh, They forgave me, and man, leave it there. There it is. But you confess that sin. And we'll talk a little bit about dealing with sin in in our prayers in the future. We're not going to cover the last little hindrance to prayer. I can sum it up in about two words. Last hindrance to prayer, self. You bring self-centered, self-indulgent prayers to God. Give me a Maserati. Make me rich, God. Give me worldly success, God. Give me a great body so I can show off in the weight room. And we don't make, maybe make them that obviously selfish, but we bring these self-centered, self-indulgent prayer requests to God, and we expect Him to answer like He's a genie in a bottle. He promises to answer prayer. I just rub the lamp, say what I want, and He gives it to me. And he says, no way. Wouldn't be good for you. My kids come, and I want to give them good things, but if they ask for self-centered, self-indulgent, self-willed things, no, you cannot have that. Because it wouldn't be good for you to do it. So, Satan, sin, self. Why do we talk about this, the hindrances to prayer? Here's why. I'm just praying the Lord will give us a little clarity when it comes to prayer. Because lots of us have sat here in our lives thinking, why doesn't prayer work? I pray, I pray, I pray, nothing happens and you've given up on prayer. Well, the Bible shows us that there are some hindrances to prayer. Why is prayer so difficult? Here's one reason, Satan. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Here's one reason, sin or self. There are some rules we need to learn about prayer. Old Halsby says prayer is kind of like a shovel. Shovel's a great instrument, a great tool. You can do all the kinds of great things with it. But if you don't learn the laws that govern the shovel, it's not going to help you very much. If you go and grab the wrong end of the shovel and start digging in the ground, it's going to hurt your hands. You're not going to get anything done. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to throw it away. And that's the way prayer is. Prayer is a gift from God. But if you don't learn the rules that govern prayer, then you will struggle. You will feel like you're getting nothing done and you will throw it aside and you will blame the tool. That's a terrible tool. And God wants to teach us some of the rules, the guidelines governing prayer so that we might ask and get whatever we ask from Him. So Father, we thank You for Your Word. Just the clarifying of Your Word, Lord God. We thank You for Your help, Father, in... um, Uh, just, man, we just thank you for this gift you've blessed us with, this gift of prayer. Just acknowledge that we we have no idea at times uh, how this tool works. Um, Father, we just confess we've all kind of fumbled around with it and gotten frustrated at times, and and we just ask you to forgive us for any frustration that we've expressed towards you over that. We thank you, Father, that you love your little children, you're patient with your children, and you want to help your little children. And we thank you, Father, that, that you can now help us with this tool called prayer. Will you teach us how this works, Lord? Will you teach us 
how to pray. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.